0: all right so um i'd like to will s- start by talking about step two and then see how far we get with that um i do have a an exercise for people to do kind of a step three exercise but uh, again uh, you know we'll just see how this goes and if there are questions that you want to jump in with um, please feel free to do that um, so step two says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Uh, One thing that's convenient about the 12 steps is that after step one we don't mention uh, drugs or alcohol again until step 12. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it kind of points to the fact that this is more than about just stopping drinking or taking drugs or overeating or Uh, acting out sexually or gambling or being codependent or uh, any of the things that we might be doing specifically, that this is a a spiritual path that's applicable really to anybody. I think to anybody, but obviously useful particularly for anyone with some kind of addictive tendency. So the other thing I want to say, and one of the things I talk about throughout this workbook is um, the idea that the 12 steps represent uh, a kind of archetypal path, uh, something almost primal that humans you know, the, the Buddha talked about his path, the, or the t- teachings of the Dharma, as, as an ancient path that he was rediscovering. He talked about like a, it was like an overgrown path through the jungle that he was kind of clearing out and that, that it so so this idea that uh, these aren't teachings that are kind of made up out of whole cloth but that there's something inside us that naturally goes through this process if we are on a spiritual journey or if we are healing or if we are seeking freedom. Um, and so, the, the step two, when it's, although it says something about a power greater than ourselves, and that's power with a capital P, and we're given to understand that that means God, that it's not about some specific understanding of the word God or higher power at all, but that. And, and that I think that we get distracted when we overemphasize that aspect of the steps. And, you know, I, I'm more interested in kind of taking care of that aspect and kind of getting comfortable with it so that then I can really get into the, what I think is the more important work of the steps. So to me, the important work of step two is seeing that change is possible. And that there are resources for change, for healing, for developing wisdom, for all the things that we want, for recovery. That the, so whether it's a power greater than myself or not, you know, if I think of that as being something uh, uh, even outside me, that, uh, that really it's just, is there some possibility? Is there some hope? For change, for growth, and and that this step is saying that we we believe that that we've come to believe that that there's that there is help that there is something to um, to assist us in our journey, and that and so you know when, when we start to talk about higher power we're talking uh, you know I would say that we're talking about external things like other people and uh, teachings. And, uh, teachers, sponsors, all those things. Uh, and what we're also talking about internal things, like our own capacity for mindfulness, or our capacity for loving kindness. Um, so, part then of what we're talking about, then when we say a power greater than ourselves, you know, this brings up this, again, this question of self, of identity, of who who are we talking about? Who is this self we're talking about? And and I think a a useful way of thinking about that is to realize that in some sense we contain multiple selves. Walt Whitman had a great phrase about that, Um, something like, do I contradict myself? yes, I contradict myself, I contain multitudes, and don't we all contradict ourselves don't we all sort of contain multitudes, all the different opinions and views and moods and uh, and as we change over time and even you know as we maybe ask a question of ourselves and we find ourselves taking both sides you know and not knowing which one uh, we really want to identify with so one of our selves i would say is our addict self in the most simple terms that self-centered self-seeking you know reactive you know pleasure seeking uh, controlling ego you know, which is a you know, we could say is a small self you know it's a, it's a self with a very limited view it's not as this gentleman was describing his experience of a of view, seeing his mind and his thoughts and the, all these things. It's not that there isn't that kind of openness. it's a very closed system it's it's very limited in its beliefs and, and uh wants to be in control is fear based all of that stuff that we know about that that that's part of the addict and uh you know mind the addict life so when so part of this step is seeing that that part of ourselves doesn't have to be in control and that we have other resources internal and external and that we have to call upon them and that our work in recovery particularly step 3 i would say is calling upon and resorting to and identifying with those other aspects of ourselves, cultivating those other aspects of ourselves. So in the beginning of recovery, you know, the in twelve step world, they say just you know keep come come to a lot of meetings. Don't sort of don't listen to your head. You know, just show up. You know, your mind is going to say, no, I need to do this. I need to do that. Don't listen to that stuff. And, it, and it's suggesting that you you know don't kind of pay attention to this addict mind, because. In the beginning you don't have much access to well we'll call it a higher self right or a bigger self a wiser self and so the you're instead you draw upon the wisdom of others the support of others the external as as well as the suggesting you know the prayer and meditation or however that manifests our our spiritual work and and so this is In a way, we're trying to awaken and develop uh, this spiritual side of ourselves, this healthy side of ourselves, this higher side of ourselves. Which eventually, you know, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the literature I'm most familiar with, you know, when we get to step 11, it talks about how our intuitive wisdom, I would call it, you know, starts to become something we can really trust. Well, in the beginning of recovery, we can't trust much in that's coming from our own minds. Intuition—we don't have much intuition, as our—you our, know—intuition comes from a quiet place, a place of wisdom within us. It's and and that is we are so—you um, know—blurred. <laughs> our minds are so blurred. Our bodies are so uh, beaten oftentimes when we go into recovery, that it's not possible for us to connect with that part of ourselves. You know, when we talk about the hindrances, um, we can think of of, of this blurring as being the five hindrances, being in control of us. Desire and aversion, the first two of the hindrances. You know, those are just kind of running us. Restliness, restlessness, you know, can't sit still, got to keep doing. Sleepiness, which is less like, oh, turn it off, I don't want to hear about it. You know. Doubt, oh, no, that's not going to work for me. You know, all those things are kind of in control. And, you know, the Buddha says, you can't really meditate deeply until you quiet those hindrances. And, and that doesn't mean you quiet them permanently. But that if you practice meditation, you can intentionally kind of uh, let them go. They kind of quiet down on their own if you put, put in the time. And, and then, you know, when, when, when the mind quiets like that, then, then that intuitive wisdom and the insights that uh, Buddhism talks about can really become clear. Uh, so uh, coming back to this question of this step, you know, the question I will ask each of you is really: uh, Do you believe that both you have the capacity for re- to stay in recovery, to be recovered, and to develop a spiritual practice, and to do you, do you believe that there is some uh, there there are resources that are powers for you? That's, that's kind of the one of the reflections that I offer uh, for step two, really to see that. And and it, you know many of us are uh, skeptical in our beliefs. And and you know I would say that there are t- kind of two elements of this faith. There is the faith that yes there are resources, but then sometimes the harder faith is I, the faith in ourselves. The faith in my own capacity to e- to even meditate, much less oh, get clean or uh, grow uh, in some spiritual way, or uh, so to really look at your own doubts and the the ways that, that you may be lacked in faith or that you don't believe, and, and and recognize that. See it again, just to see it. See, oh, there is that. Because, you know, one thing about both Buddhism and the Twelve Steps is that they're kind of grounded in behavior. We start with, this is, you know, we really see, you know, there's some clear seeing, there's some right view, like, oh, I need to stop doing this, and I need to start doing that, you know, behavior. And I do that. And meanwhile, my mind is going... But I can't do it, or I'm no good, or this—what's the point? And you know, and I keep coming back, right? <laughs> because it—you know—I believe that it works, even though right now uh, it doesn't seem like I don't know if I can do it. You know, all those doubts. You know, the doubts are are um, dealt with really through t- over time. And it's really, it's really, you know, fundamentally, when the Buddha talks about doubt, he says really the way to conquer doubt is to practice. Yeah. You have to do it. You, if, you, if you sit back and go, well, that's not going to work for me, well, you'll be right because you're not doing it. You know? So it's definitely not going to work for you if you don't do it. And this is really the fundamental thing for us to understand about faith is, at least in the Buddhist practice. Now, there are traditions where there's some idea that you you need to believe something in order to get the rewards of that pra- belief or that practice. and that, And that's not the Buddhist orientation. The Buddhist orientation is that you need to trust in something or you won't do it. Your belief and your opinions, your faith, conditions your behavior. So if you believe you can't meditate or you believe you can't stop drinking, then you won't do it. You won't meditate because you don't think you can do it. So that's a guarantee that you won't succeed. If you believe you can't stop drinking, you'll just keep drinking. So that's the importance of faith, how it conditions our behavior. Um, And it's why we need to look at what our beliefs are. What do you believe? until you do one thing and it doesn't mean
1: that in a lifetime later you're going to get it but I mean you can see it in your day to day life yeah. I
0: do this, right. I get this if I'm angry with somebody and they'll probably yell back. to you know, right, you yeah know. and, 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 and you so apply that to your faith of you know, practicing better it's, you know, a, a cause and effect the law of karma is absolutely tied in with this because it, that's what as you say, allows things to actually happen to change, and if the thing is that if you are denying that you can change, then you are denying the law of cause and effect. And if you don't believe in the law of cause and effect, in Buddhist terms, you are deluded. You know, and and there are people who don't believe in cause and effect. I mean, and, and it's interesting that you know, we see in the in, these, in the ancient Buddhist texts where people will come and talk to the Buddha and they will put forth their, their spiritual views. And, and so it, it becomes clear through these texts that there were several different uh, sort of metaphysical or spiritual uh, views about how the universe worked. And if you look at them and analyze them, you will see that actually those views still exist. So one of them, which the Buddha denied, was that everything is preordained, and so it doesn't matter what you do. And, you know, we see that there is still this belief, right? Some people say, well, you know, it's just God's will, you know, as though God, like, has, you know, people say God has a plan, right? Which implies that not just, like, this happened right now because of cause and effect, but that everything is planned out and then you know Jesus will come and or wh- whoever's going to come and lift you up and uh, you know and that's all a plan so the you know there's uh i mean that's that's okay i mean i mean you can believe what you want the problem of course with that is the problem of responsibility cuz if everything is god's plan then anything you do is God's plan so you can just do whatever you want and kind of go oh it's God's plan you know I mean I robbed a bank you know I mean it was it was God's plan it must have been God's plan because I did it uh, well it's, it's just logical isn't it I, and hopeless in, in the sense that I can't change you know? right and then and then you so, are why bother to you're also a victim then, right? Which is the problem I have with the idea that God got me sober.
1: Yeah.
0: Because mm-hmm. what if God decides I should drink, you know? <laughs> hey, then I don't have any control.
1: But isn't that the mantra in AA is what? God's will and
0: God has a plan for you? Um, you know, it, 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 I, I, I don't want to make say that that's the mantra of AA. I've heard that. Um, and you know what? What I I try to interpret everything I hear through the lens of Buddhism. Right. So when I hear the idea of God's will, what? I, well, I guess I don't think I'm going to do this right now uh, because it's in step eleven. And I will definitely address it. Um, And you can jump ahead in various of my books and find out my opinion on that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, So. Let me... uh, uh, let me talk a little bit about step three uh, so I can kind of move into this. So uh, just, uh, just to point out what may be obvious, but that there is part of the structure of the 12 steps is a setup. They tell you you're powerless, and then they tell you, but there's another power for you, right? So there's, uh, that can be seen as a setup. Or it can be seen as a way of helping us to shift our view. In in any case, we can see that there's a process by which, in step one, you know, we point to our powerlessness uh, over. I will, you know, let's be specific. It says we're powerless over certain things, depending upon the program or the issue you're dealing with. It doesn't say we're powerless over everything. Um, and, and sometimes people sort of do that in 12-step programs. Well, I'm just powerless, and it's like, no. I mean, that's, you know, that's just abdicating responsibility. Well, uh, you, know, as I, you know, the way I put it is powerless, not helpless, uh, meaning that there are things that I can't control, but that doesn't mean that I don't have some uh, agency in my life. But obviously, we're talking about places where we really get stuck, right? That's that's what addiction is, being very stuck, right? And so trying to get, what we're talking about here is where can I get help? Where is there power that I can draw from that's not going to be motivated by my ego, by my grasping? So step three, and I think... uh, uh, actually, this, uh, I think this may, may even work, uh, <laughs> what I want to say uh, that will allow me to just start to talk about step three without taking on the whole step. So the beginning of the step says we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. But the first thing is that we made a decision. And I'd like to point out, first of all, that making a decision for someone who was an addict is progress. Because when you're an addict, you don't make decisions. You're not a decision implies that you've considered thoughtfully considered various alternatives and then made a choice based on that thinking. Addicts, you know, you get up in the morning, you look for something to smoke or (laughs) snore to drink, and you know you. You, you know, you're off and running. You're just you're following one impulse after another, one grasping moment, and uh, followed by one moment of aversion, until we co- collapse. You know, and and uh, so that it's not there's no decisions being made. It's uh, we can't call it decisive. Yes. Well,
1: I was kind of thinking before when you said that the Greeks thought their thoughts were God talking to uh-huh. them or telling them what to do. And I thought, yeah, but if you're like an addict, you do think it's the God, it's your addict. Yes, that's talking right. To you. And, and, and so that's what re- really resonates with me is having power over your thoughts rather than, I mean, I'm powerless over this addict in me that makes me crazy sometimes. Mm-hmm. And this addict is like so clever, you know, so it feels clever when it's, you know, being successful at least. But so for me, the higher power thing, I'm kind of like now thinking it can be, if you don't have a higher power, and that higher power could just be belief in yourself that you could change, hmm. your addict is gonna be your higher power just by kind of moving in and taking over. like Because you're just, you're following its like demands.
0: I don't understand.
1: Yeah, maybe maybe it's maybe it's just a connection or it's something that I'm seeing, but it's like it is a very controlling force, right? Addiction. So when you're just succumbing to addiction, you you're following something it's internal, but feel yeah. You, yeah you know,
0: right, right. Yeah, I mean But but that's I think that's what we're trying to cultivate through A spiritual practice through the steps to to develop the the capacity to make wise decisions, Mm -hmm. and that's why I say in the beginning kind of recovery, people suggested probably best if you don't make the decisions that you get guidance from other people. But eventually, you know, we're not calling our sponsor every five minutes to know whether we should what we should have for lunch. Well, maybe we are if we're in a food program, but I mean, if you're if you're an alcoholic, you know, you know. So, uh, so. Uh, yeah, but
1: if like thinking about what you said about Emerson and the multitude of or, selves, Whitman, like but, yeah. or Whitman, my, my oh, wife wrote, wrote about him when was PhD. So. <laughs> but um, like when you're an addict, when you're the addictive part of your that self is in control. Yes. You have to change that way of thinking. Yes. I had some some other thing I was leading to with that, but like it's like when I say. Wow, I hope I go to meditation tonight. It's like, wait a minute, that's me I'm talking about, you know. Yeah. So you do. I like what you said about the multitude of selves. Yeah. I'm just trying to put all this together.
0: Well, yeah, and one of the things that we do in meditation is we start to see and hear all those voices. Mm-hmm. And if we're able, as our intuitive wisdom grows, we start to be able to pick out. The voices to listen to. And yeah, I mean, sometimes you listen to the ice cream voice, you know, it's like, okay, but as long as you don't listen to the heroin voice, you're probably okay. You know?
1: But isn't it kind of the same voice? I mean, I've been making fudge a lot lately, you know. <laughs> Just a little aside. She handed me the microphone and I whispered that.
0: Okay, great. I'm not going to... I think as long as it's high-quality chocolate, it's okay. Okay, that's what I don't want to talk about right now. Aversion. No, it's just, it's just something. So so this is what I, I want to do. I want, I want to talk about commitment. Um, it's making a decision to turn our well-known lives over, as, as meaning com- committing ourselves to live differently. Commitment to a life, clean and sober, is a vital aspect of maintaining our recovery. If we're going to do this successfully, it's going to mean more than a casual effort but a whole lifestyle change. This can mean new friends, new hangouts, new ways of spending free time, even new employment. It's difficult to stay clean if you're hanging out with all the old friends who are still getting loaded. I've noticed this particularly for young people because that, you know, who get sober when they're like in college or whatever, and it's really hard to have a social life when everybody you know is uh, partying, anyway. Further, turning your will and your life over means more than not using, it means living a life of integrity and morality. People who are successful in their recovery are honest, generous, and compassionate. They don't lie, they aren't promiscuous, and they don't steal or cheat. Many of us wanted to be good people, but under the influence we acted on our lower impulses. Now that we have dropped our use of intoxicants, we find it easier to live a clean life in all respects. So I was hoping, uh, I mean, we just have like 12, 10 or 12 minutes left, but I was hoping to do this as an exercise where people talk to each other. So um, maybe we can just do, do about five minutes or so of this. And it, it's a so it's a short exercise here in step three. Ask yourself... What you are committed to in your recovery? What are your values? How do you want to live now? How do you hold back from absolute commitment to recovery? What loopholes do you still have? So, what are your values, and what do you you know? What are you committed to, and what do you what are you not committed to? So, well, it's on page ninety. It's on the bottom. Yeah. So, would you? Uh, be willing to talk with each other about that and see if uh, it's of some value. We'll find out if this book is worth anything. So just, just find a partner, turn, turn to somebody close to you, and just share a little bit about what your values are and what, what you want to commit to in your recovery.